Ken, I wanted to talk with you briefly about your parents' lives and their points of origin. Your father came from New Brunswick, Canada, is that right? That's right. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me something about how he happened to come to Montana and when he came? Well, there were other relatives uh, out here who had businesses and uh, they, I, I'm quite, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm quite sure that it was really the economics of the family that brought them because they could find more work for all the children they had, the boys. My grandfather, Beckwith, was married to A.B. Hammond's sister. I see. And, and my, my grandfather's name was Charles E. Beckwith. I see. And when he came, he and his wife came uh, west, mm -hmm. uh, they brought five daughters and three sons mm -hmm. uh, that were all grown. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, uh, well, one, one of the daughters married Jack Keith, who started the uh, Missoula Trust and Savings Bank. Mm -hmm. What year did they come? In 1886, came to Missoula. Do you know why they picked Missoula? Oh, the relatives were here. Yes. What what business did they engage in? Were they farmers? Were they lumber people? Well, uh, I don't know <laughs> what they did in Canada. But here in Montana, they the Missoula Mercantile was uh, president of the Missoula Mercantile was operated by an uncle of mine who was a brother-in-law of my father's and uh, my father worked for him two of and my uh, my father's uh, brother that was alive then worked for him too and uh, the, the missoula mercantile yeah what one of the older sisters was married to him yes mm -hmm. the oldest daughter uh, clara now, was that the mcleod mcleod ch uh, mcleod and um, then we were relatives. My grandmother was a Hammond, and her brother, her brothers lived in Montana, and they were lumbermen, uh, and they, um, their headquarters were up to Blackfoot and so forth. And then uh, my uncle Andrew Hammond went out to the Pacific Coast, and um, Uncle Herb was the president of the Missoula Mercantile Company. He would be a brother-in-law of my father's, and um, A.B. Hammond, uh, the Hammond Lumber Company on the coast, would be a, an uncle of my father's. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like there was plenty of opportunity. It was, yes, and it was the family businesses that gave them work. Mm -hmm. um, what did your father do? Well, he uh, uh, worked for the Missoula Mercantile Company until 1902. And then uh, they, uh, there was a store in St. Ignatius that owed the Missoula Mercantile Company more money than they could pay. So C.H. sent my father out to St. Ignatius to take over that store. And so, I, and I remember as a young person in the Flathead Valley that the Kalispell Mercantile. That's right. That was the uh, and the, the Kalispell Mercantile, Kalispell Grocery, and the Kalispell Feed and Grain. 
they were all belonged and then there was some land down near DeMarsville that the company owned and they had some other land uh, but, but, they, but the Kalispell Mercantile and, and the, the other businesses you mentioned were also they were owned by the Missoula Mercantile. 100%. And did, they, did, they, did the Missoula Mercantile have commercial enterprises in other communities too? Oh yes. They built Western Montana and that's a story all of itself. Well, what was Mrs. McGowan? Did she run the grocery store when they first came down the plains? Do you know? I don't know about that. Well, maybe, you know. well, it must have grown fairly rapidly because it goes from one department to uh, four. And also, he built a Of course, the Missoula Mercantile Company helped him well, a lot. Well, I was going to ask you. He must have he was quite a friend of, uh, he was quite a friend of C.C. Cloud. Or Herb, as he called him. Yeah. Did your father ever talk about A.B. Hammond? who owned the Missoula Mercantile? And the one that he talked about the most was uh, Mr. McLeod, C.H. Did he deal with McLeod yes. quite a bit? Yes, that's where he did almost all of his buying was through uh, Mr. McLeod, and he helped uh, Dad. I mean, he would give him pointers of what to do. McLeod didn't have a, a competing store in this area at all, did he? No, no, he didn't. Although it's quite possible that the Merc Stevensville Mercantile, which my Uncle George was in, I think they both dealt with Mr. McLeod. The next thing you know, Hammond's running these tent stores along the right-of-way and doing so very well helping the railroads coming along. They move these tent stores. After the railroad comes through, Hammond says, gosh, better set up some stores in these towns. So he did. He, that's how Thompson Falls got in. R. Lee, Drummond. And when I went to work for the Missoula Merck, I think every little grocery store from Hamilton to Troy <clears throat> was deep in debt hmm. to the Missoula Merck. And they kept them that way pretty much because they ran the wholesale grocery business. They built the main store here, then they built stores down in Hamilton and Stevensville and Frenchtown and R. Lee, St. Ignatius uh, and Ronan and uh, also in Polson. And they went as far as Troy. Now, they did something else, Bob. They built banks in those towns. Now, would, uh, where would he get his finance? Uh, from the mercantile, or do you suppose he would go to the First well, National Bank? Or, uh, uh, the First National Bank of Plains. Yeah, now the First National Bank of Plains or Missoula? Missoula. Yeah. J.M. Keith. Keith. Right, right. Jack Keith, as Jack everybody Keith. calls him. Jack Keith. When your father began that business up there, uh, it was called uh, the Mercantile. Beckwith Mercantile. Be oh, Beckwith Mercantile, I see. Uh, did it keep that name throughout well, all those years? Until my brother and I took it over and then we changed it to Beckwith Brothers. I see. Uh, there was no longer any connection with the Missoula Mercantile? Yeah, uh, yes, the Missoula Mercantile actually owned it all that mm -hmm. night. 
So the store was actually supporting uh, three three families. Were you married at the time? Uh, 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 yes, I got married in, in 32. Mm -hmm. And uh, my brother uh, was married uh, a year before I was. Sure didn't make any money, but it was providing a living for quite a few people. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that uh, some money had to be paid to uh, McLeod, yeah, to the uh, headquarters. And it uh, was never enough to suit him. Do you have some recollections of him? I've, I've heard uh, some stories about him, what a wonderful person he was, what a good businessman he was. Uh, I would like to reserve the comments. Oh, <laughs> okay. I'm John Hooks. And I'm Matt Newman. And this is Land Grab. Welcome back to Land Grab. This is the final chapter in our series on the opening of the Flathead Reservation, the rise of the Missoula Mercantile Company, and the imposition of the 20th century in western Montana. In the last couple chapters, we looked at how the state's regional corporate monopolies of the 19th century gave way to hegemonic domination of Montana and America by gigantic multinational trusts like Standard Oil and General Electric. And we saw how those multinationals moved in on the flathead, bringing the American capitalist takeover of indigenous lands that had begun with the Hellgate Treaty in 1855 to its conclusion with the construction of Kerr Dam in the 1930s. But there is still a loose end that we need to try and tie up here. And that is the role of the Missoula Mercantile in all of this. We saw Andrew Hammond and his organization get their fingerprint all over the foundations of Montana's key institutions in its formative days as a territory and a young state in the first half of the show. And we've outlined how the organization formed the vanguard of the push to allot the Flathead Reservation under the leadership of C.H. McLeod after 
Andrew Hammond left for the West Coast. The Mercantile has taken more of a back seat in the last couple chapters, although they've certainly been there the whole time, lurking in the rings of power underneath Amalgamated and the power company, but still economically and politically dominating Missoula County and western Montana. Throughout the first decades of the 1900s, C.H. McLeod expanded and obscured the mercantile empire in Montana, as we heard about in the intro. All of that tape in the intro is sourced from oral history interviews with Anna and Jack Beckwith, Dorotha Smola, Cliff Rittenauer, and Ty Robinson. We've heard many, but not all, of them before in the show. The speakers in those clips cover the whole of western Montana, from Stevensville up to Kalispell. And they lay out just how widespread and deeply embedded the mercantile was throughout the entire region. As one of the only organizations remaining profitable throughout the 1920s, the mercantile actually expanded throughout the decade, moving into real estate, farming, ranching, banking, and irrigation, selling the supplies to build the irrigation project through the Beckwith Mercantile in St. Ignatius. But to fully understand the extent of the mercantile miasma, to get the proper sense of just how pervasive the tentacles of the Missoula octopus had become, you have to go forward to the Great Depression in Missoula. Uh, this is an interview with uh, Mr. John Toole on uh, July 16, 1987. Our main topic will be the depression of the 1930s. Uh, John, uh, On the heels of a mini depression the decade before, Montana was in dire straits. But uh, we had an influx also of people from eastern Montana because it was a drought period of the place of wheat went down. They came here in the mid they squatted in an area which is bounded by highway to the south, uh, Reserve Street, South Avenue, and um, up where those theaters are now. They built shacks in But they all seem to get along with it. The unhoused, flooded Missoula, living in itinerant camps on land owned by McLeod and the South Missoula Land Company off of Highway 93 between Reserve Street and South Avenue. Um, you say they squatted out there. Did they have to pay any rent at all on that land? Uh, I think whenever a landlord could collect one, he did. He couldn't collect it. Uh-huh. But he hoped maybe some of them might. I think the... I don't know who owned all that, but I suspect maybe the Missoula Mercantile owned all that. I see. And McLeod was a realist. He was tough, but he was a realist. And uh, he had them come in and get their groceries, Missoula Mercantile groceries. And run up a bill? like that. Well, we played everything by ear, you know. I see. Uh-huh. <laughs> the Anaconda Mill laid off all of its single employees. Thousands scraped by in an extremely cash-poor economy with little employment opportunity. But one organization in western Montana was remarkably liquid, hiring as many young laborers as it could, 
offering up cash loans at 6% interest, no questions asked, and propping up the grocery stores of the region, the Missoula Mercantile. Interesting another thing, if you were a rancher for the Missoula Mercantile Company, you paid your bill only once a year. And when you did, you'd come in and see CH, and they'd visit with you. Now these were ranchers from the Blackfoot area, the Bitterroot, the Clarksford area, up in St. Ignatius on the reservation. That's, it was recognized that these fellows, these people only going to pay once a year. The Merck carried them for the full year. And the story that Walter tells me about his father was during the Depression. He said there were a lot of people who would starved to death if it hadn't been for C.H. There was always something. The rural mercantile company, for example, would hire kids for all conceivable kind of jobs. They hired college kids particularly because they wanted to come here to the university. But they were, the, the old rural mercantile company were plum full of Tom Haynes on a history of the grocery business, the small grocery store in Missoula and western Montana. And this is March 4, 1981. Did the uh, mercantile underwrite a lot of grocery stores? In yes, they, they used to, they, I don't know how far you would say underwrite, but they were the bankers. They, uh, and many of the grocery stores, they had interest in them. They uh, didn't know them, but they had interest. They perhaps owned some of the stock in it or things like that. The mercantile expanded its empire and floated the whole cash-strapped region. One time, the New Mercantile Company was a very powerful political in politics. All the sub rows they kept money in the counter, they kept it in the vault, they were given pol uh, politicians and stuff, handouts. <laughs> one time we had 750 employees. We had the retail store here. We had a wholesale hardware, wholesale grocery in Kalispell, a retail store in Kalispell, 11 grain elevators, and at one time we had, we, people only paid their bill many, many years ago, twice a year, especially farmers and ranchers. <coughs> and we, and we had helped a lot of them out because they were having a hard time way back when, you know, they were having real tough times. And uh, we lent money out, some of the ranchers couldn't pay. And one time we tried to take over we own 16 ranches. Throughout the 30s, they carried farmers and ranchers through entire seasons on credit, gave people jobs when there was no work, and functioned as an unregulated bank, freely loaning cash both to citizens and the county's actual bankers. And at the time I liquidated the Missoula Mercantile Company, this octopus, which was, a lot of people don't understand that it was that kind of a operation, liquidated the, really the retail operation first and then the wholesale, got all done, and by 1967, thereabouts, had finally done everything. Sold the, the mills, the uh, grain elevators across the state that they owned. They owned grain elevators? Oh yeah, they owned the, around, around Montana? Yes, they had grain elevators in uh, Hamilton, uh, St. Ignatius, 
Polson and a big operation in Kalispell, which is all under what they call MISCO feed, M-I-S-K-O, MISCO feed. Then they had a big one in Bozeman. When they had the combine companies, all of the companies together under the old regime, when I swear I said they had 750 employees, we were doing about about $22 million worth of business. In the thing. And that, was, that was in dollars. That meant something. Today would be $50 million. Yeah. At least. The Missoula Mercantile Company was the financial institution of Western Montana. They did bigger banking business, all the banks put together, and they were in a position that they could help the retailers out in Montana to keep the thing going. They would also could help the people that needed the welfare, the relief orders, plus the government, because it was just getting things started, and they apparently didn't know how to handle it, didn't know how to pay. They, really, they helped everybody out. Because you go go to them and borrow money and six percent, sign your name to a note, and that was it. And of course, as many ranchers, people like that, would just leave their money there on the credit on their accounts. They could draw against it. But we know all this, but all intent and purpose, they were a bank. We heard some more tape from Ty Robinson in there, as well as Tom Haynes, who owned a small grocery in Missoula supported by the Merck. We also heard J.E. Myers, who ran the mercantile grocery department starting in 1939. Myers especially gives us some tantalizing looks inside the vaults of the big store. We used to lend the old company all kinds of money. Uh, a lot of times the banks, a lot of, a lot of the old timers around here didn't, but or seemed not, like not, not so like to go to the banks. They would get, some of them would get turned down at the bank, and Mr. McLeod would say, the old man, C.H. McLeod would say, oh, give him the money, give him the money. And you usually got it back? Yeah, you know, usually got it, usually got paid. He'd take a, he'd take a flyer. And he was very, very crisp in his speech. And uh, those are the days when uh, Mr. McLeod was funny. In that they, they would, they would get upset and nervous when the bank balance dropped under $500,000. Get down to $380,000, they'd call New York Guarantee Trust for more $100,000 or something like that over the phone. Of course, the interest rate was 3%, and it isn't this confiscatory then. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, that they had a great thing about having cash. I said, Mr. It's, it's silly to have half a million dollars in the bank. And our bills would run four to ten for much and two, three hundred thousand dollars. But in three or four more days, we'd have money back. It was silly to borrow that much. You know, I have that much money yeah. laying around the bank, even at three percent. But half million dollars, hundred, it, it, it's fifteen thousand dollars you're, you're throwing away. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and in, we <laughs> into everything. Oh, into everything. Uh, uh, I saw in the beginning that Mr. McLeod and the company was very, very much into politics, not not publicly, but supported many people for many causes and gave them money to support their campaign. Just long, just the same thing as a under the table or legally under the table. Oh, uh, 
it was legal, I guess, but you didn't have to report so many contributions then. But they didn't want it known that they were supporting so-and-so for governor or so-and-so for the legislature. Mm -hmm. So they'd give them money to help them. And of course, the Anaconda Company and Mr. Cloud and all those people were friends. And uh, what they contributed to the <laughs> some of these political campaigns was fantastic. Fantastic. And it wasn't just a couple hundred dollars, it was tens and fifteen thousands of dollars. They didn't care that you knew about it at all, or the other people? They did. They, uh, I knew about it, but I didn't. Uh, you know, you work for a company, you work for a company. You don't sure. tell everybody mm -hmm. that they could contribute. Some of them, some of it was done sub rosa. They'd, they'd go to these, go to the legislature, and some of the hotel rooms, they'd throw the money over the transom. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> so they couldn't identify it. And we always had a slush fund. In the safe, in the vault, they had a vault, I had a slush fund in there. That's probably throw a lot of things out of school. And it would have, well, minimum $10,000, up to $30,000 cash. Cash in that fund, and it was in a separate box in the drawer in the safe, in the vault. So when so-and-so was needed a little contribution for something like Mr. McLeod or Mr. Bungie or one of us would win and well, the other one would watch it and get dough, but Mr. McLeod was the one to control that. Old man McLeod, he mm -hmm. <coughs> He controlled that and then he put some more money in the fund and we and get some more money and it the mercantile's tentacles had been winding their way throughout western Montana for decades, sucking up assets and land, buying businesses outright or functionally owning them through their debt. This whole web of assets, the mills, grain elevators, ranches, grocery stores, banks, real estate sales, rents, all of it funneled cold, hard cash upward into the slush funds of McLeod and headquarters. And while some of this cash did go back into the region and maybe even saved some lives during the Depression, that was a fraction of the total amount. Because a lot of the money that was flowing up to McLeod was already spoken for and was itself flowing up into the real headquarters of the Missoula Mercantile in San Francisco. To really understand what the mercantile was, how and why the mercantile operated the way it did, to unwind the tentacles of the Missoula octopus, we have to catch up with someone whose shadow has been lingering over everything we've covered in the last nine chapters, Andrew B. Hammond. But uh, I always had the feeling that uh... The Hammonds. We were, that we were all working for the Hammonds. <laughs> Chapter 10 The Big Store. Now, I think that uh, there's another theme or two that I want to go over. One, there is now, and there always has been, a very heavy pattern of absentee ownership in Montana. I'm under the impression that, um, I don't know how much of it's true, but it seemed that, that the Merc 
in many ways was sort of Hammond's cash cow. That he was able to draw upon that for all the California enterprises as well, long after he left. It made so correct. much money and it kept. That is correct. It had cap, they were able to pr produce a lot of liquid capital. That goes back to my point a little while ago. Even after he had left, he still had his hand on the Missoula Merck. Yes, money was going all the time, even when I was there. It was, it was just flowing out? Money out of the operation of the retail wholesale here uh -huh. went down, yes, to the Hammonds operation. I think it was still my hand on the glove operation. When we last left Andrew Hammond, it was 1895, and he was spending as little time in Missoula as possible. Grover Cleveland was back in the White House, and the investigations into the MIC's timber depredations had picked back up. Hammond had his partner, E.L. Bonner, and corkscrew Tom Thomas Carter, who was now a senator, start working on the Secretary of the Interior to get the investigation held. They also hired the nephew of the head of the general land office to lobby his uncle to grant the Blackfoot Milling Company permits. Hammond, meanwhile, was traveling constantly, trying to manage the response to the investigation and trying to raise capital for some new business ventures. When he traveled in and out of Missoula, he and McLeod communicated in a secret code through telegrams and trusted most of their conversations to personal confidence. Even as he moved more and more out of the area, Hammond's economic dominance of Western Montana only grew, and public opinion began to turn against this absentee oligarch. Hammond was a psychotically ambitious man, as we've covered, and being a generally disliked, even reviled, ruler of this hinterland fiefdom in Montana wasn't good enough for him. He wanted to join the ranks of the upper echelon of capitalist magnates the Rockefellers, the Huntingtons, Carnegie Territory. So he began to cast around for greener pastures and higher profit margins. But before he could do that, he had to weather a severe financial crash in 1893. In the years leading up to the Panic of 1893, the Missoula Octopus Hammond's Montana Enterprises raked in profits of $300,000 to $400,000 a year, which is close to $13 million today. But the crash inflicted a 40% loss of revenue upon his business, and panicked citizens rushed to withdraw money as banks were put under runs and folded across the state. With his own First National Bank of Missoula in dire straits, and facing a very real possibility of going out of business, Hammond took $42,000 in cash, the equivalent of about $1.3 million today, out of the Missoula Mercantile and deposited it in the First National. The injection of cash and the holding of deposits by other key stakeholders saved the bank, which was back breaking even by 1894. The Mercantile, which had an incredible amount of cash turnover, recovered the $42,000 quickly and was even posting a small profit by 1894. 
It was an inspired financial maneuver from Hammond, not just because it saved the First National Bank, but because it revealed a conduit for generating large amounts of cash at a low interest rate. The mercantile operation, as we've laid out, had a constant, almost unfathomably large amount of cash turnover going on all the time. There was this incessant flow of money coming in, from rents, mortgages, wholesale and grocery orders, deposits, and interest payments on loans. But they also needed to maintain similarly constant large purchases in order to keep the business running. The wholesale business made huge supply orders and carried ranch, farm, and grocery customers throughout the whole year on credit. And while those massive expenditures facilitated the constant flow of money back in, they also required the Missoula Merc to come up with huge chunks of cash to pay for the merchandise. In order to do this, the Missoula Merc was constantly taking out loans from some of the premier conduits of Eastern Capital. We're talking J.P. Morgan, Lords of London, that kind of thing. These loans would be in the tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Money that would quickly flow back up into the Merc within a matter of days or weeks and allow them to pay off the loan incredibly quickly. As a result, the Missoula Mercantile had the best credit ratings attainable and could draw money at a supremely low interest rate anytime they wanted, no questions asked. Hammond was looking to build a massive lumber syndicate over the entire West Coast, which would necessitate the ability to generate large amounts of capital to buy timberlands and acquire smaller companies. But the lumber industry was remarkably volatile. The price of timber fluctuated constantly, and industrial logging required a ton of overhead, so venerable financial institutions were wary of providing large amounts of funds to support lumber ventures. But Hammond figured out that if he just arranged for funds he needed as loans through the Missoula Mercantile, he could get the same capital for much lower interest. The mercantile would then hoover up enough cash to pay the loan off quickly and maintain the outstanding credit rating. Then the whole process could repeat. But what happens is railroad or lumber companies are notorious, I mean, in terms of the classic rise and fall of, of a market commodity and sort of the cyclical nation of capitalism, timber is like the the perfect example. This is Greg Gordon. We heard a lot from him in the first half of the show, and we're going to hear a lot more in the rest of this chapter. Greg is the chair of the Environmental Studies program at Gonzaga, and he wrote the book on A.B. Hammond, When Money Grew on Trees, A.B. Hammond and the Age of the Timber Baron. Because you have this this thing, this commodity that anybody can get, basically. And when the price goes up, everybody goes and starts cutting down trees. And the more trees that people cut down, the more the price goes down. But in order to cut down those trees, especially in the, in the 20th century, the early 20th century requires huge capital investment. You have to build railroads to access the timber. You got to build t- lumber mills, you, and then there's steam donkey comes along, and all this industrial infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You need to have a timber company become sort of this standing operating cost, and so timber companies end up floating bonds in Wall Street to maintain 
you know, to keep keep operating. Well, the more they the more they churn out, <laughs> the more the price drops. You know, we see this with oil, right? Another commodity. You know, now we have OPEC and Exxon Mobil sort of controlling the, so the, the price. Right. This doesn't happen. But you know, you get a glut on the market. You know, and the price collapses, and the lumber companies are sort of, well, what do we do now? Well, we owe all this money to Wall Street, and I think you know, if they stop production, they'll go bankrupt, and so they end up losing money but producing more. And of course, the more they produce, the more the price drops, and this they end up in this like cyclical thing, and this goes back again to the colonial New Brunswick. The colonial era, same thing happens over and over again. And, and Hammond is aware of this. And he knows that this is, and so he tries to basically control the market. The public line both Hammond and McLeod maintained from 1894, when Hammond left Montana for good, was that good old Uncle Herb McLeod had taken over the operation and was breaking up the octopus, replacing the monopoly with the family business. But in truth. Hammond and McLeod stayed in constant contact, writing multiple letters and telegrams to each other basically every day, and corroborating and collaborating on business decisions. And throughout each step of his journey to become a massive corporate behemoth, Hammond directly tapped this mercantile funnel to provide crucial capital to support and expand his empire. We're going to take a break. Here, but when we come back, we're going to go over Hammond's Montana-funded journey on the West Coast. Hey there, Landgrab listener. John here. I just wanted to hop on and remind y'all that Landgrab is supported by listener donations. Our friends at the Montana Mint help us publish and publicize the show, but the production is really just Matt and I. We got a really great response after we put out our first episode, and we're really grateful to everybody that chipped in and helped us realize this first season. We want to keep making Land Grab as long as there's an audience and a market for it. To make the show at the level of quality that we think it deserves, is a very labor-intensive and time-consuming process. And listener support allows us to put in the time and effort that is required. So if you want to help us grow Land Grab and make more of the show, the most helpful thing would be to chuck in a buck or two, which you can do at landgrabpodcast.com slash donate. Again, that is landgrabpodcast.com, all one word, slash donate. If contributing to the show isn't an option for you, there are still plenty of ways that you can help us out by spreading the word about the show. Tell your friends, recommend it to every tourist you run into, and you can share our stuff on social media. We're at LandGrabPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That sort of stuff really helps draw more eyes and ears to the show. It's been so nice to see the kind of response that the show has been getting. And again, we really want to thank everybody who has helped us so far. But for now, let's get back to the show.
Welcome back. We're going to start this part of the episode with Hammond's first venture outside of Montana, which he began even before he left the state. And that was the purchase of two railroads in western Oregon. Right, we talked about them building the Northern Pacific Railroad that made them a lot of money, but they also built almost all the branch lines in, in Montana. Um, you know, Phillipsburg Line, the Red Lodge Line, all the branches, you know, off the Northern Pacific, um, the Bitterroot Branch. Um, and so they had quite a bit of railroad experience. And then he had opportunity visiting uh, Portland that you saw two railroads come up for sale, like at a sheriff's sale, like, you know, 1883, right? 18, well, this is 1884, but I mean, 1883, the whole collapse, you know, yeah. the, the, you know, probably the great, one of the greatest, you know, economic collapses in U.S. history. In December 1894, Hammond made his first big purchase outside of the Montana sphere when he and Bonner put up $100,000 of their own money to buy the Oregon Pacific Railroad, which ran through Corvallis and Central Oregon up to Spokane. The OPR had gone bankrupt in 1890 with more than a million dollars in accrued debt, and by the time Hammond bought it in 1895, it was in disrepair. The $100,000 got Hammond and Bonner 142 miles of poorly maintained rail, right-of-way land, an unfinished road through the Cascades, train cars, 16 locomotives, two tugboats, and four steamships. The same month, Hammond also undertook another railroad venture in Oregon, this time purchasing the Astoria and Columbia River Railroad, the uncompleted section of the NPRR's transcontinental line that would run from Portland to Astoria and down the coast to Seaside. The townspeople of Astoria were so desperate to have this long idle project completed that they gave Hammond about $1.8 million worth of real estate subsidies to entice him. The value of the subsidies made the ANCRR a profitable venture and Hammond was able to construct the line without additional capital, but the OPR was a different story. The railroad was in such disrepair that one of its bridges even collapsed in 1895, smashing a train, breaking the conductor's legs, and killing two people. Hammond had actually been on that train, but got off the stop before the crash. To generate the capital to repair the track, Hammond reincorporated the business as the Oregon Central Line, and he and Bonner brought in a man named John Claffin, who was president of one of the country's biggest wholesale and retail dry goods businesses, and who had a years-long relationship with Hammond through the mercantile. The new partners drew heavily from the mercantile funnel to fund the track repairs with cheap loans. These first two railroad ventures were completed in 1896 and immediately proved profitable, especially the ANCRR, which attracted business people and families from Portland out to the coast and created a burgeoning tourism economy. Hammond even managed to bring C.P. Huntington of the Southern Pacific Railroad in on the project. But it wasn't the tourism industry that had drawn Hammond and his oligarchical backers to the project. It was the vast, untouched stands of Douglas fir and Sitka spruce in Oregon's coastal range that lay there for the taking, waiting only for a railroad to be built through the area for industrial logging to be possible. And they pick up these two railroads, and then they start, you know, looking at these railroads, and they realize that these railroads 
could access the Oregon coast timberlands and they began buying up a lot of uh, timberland for nothing as well um, and then turned one of them into uh, basically a lumber um, railroad. With the railroad secure, Hammond needed to generate capital to buy up timberlands and build mills, and he went looking for it from new and old sources. When Hammond and McLeod bought out Marcus Daly's competing Hennessy Mercantile in 1891, it signaled the end of the outright competition between the two for dominance in western Montana. The most likely reason Daly acquiesced was that he realized the mercantile monopoly was too entrenched in the wholesale and retail business for him to dislodge, and it would be more profitable, and it would be more profitable to sell out to Hammond than to compete with him. That same logic seems to have influenced Hammond's decision-making regarding the Montana lumber industry. Daly had expanded his bitterroot operations out of Hamilton and added mills in the northern Flathead region throughout the 1890s. And with the formidable financial might of the Anaconda Company behind him, he was poised to surpass Hammond's own Blackfoot Milling Company. The solution was obvious to two profit-oriented businessmen. They were in cahoots, as you probably know, all the way through Marcus and Hammond. In 1897, Marcus Daly began negotiations to buy the big Blackfoot Milling Company, eventually purchasing it in August of the next year for approximately $1.5 million. The sale was public and covered in the newspapers at the time, but another deal the two magnets made that same year was not public and was kept secret until well into the 20th century. In the 1920s, perhaps, and then he was elected governor in 1924. He defeated Joe Dixon. In the, uh, that is cr- campaign, I <laughs> He defeated Joe Dixon, of course, because um, Missoula Mercantile Company and the Anaconda Company unloaded Joe. Uh, the Missoula Mercantile Company was primarily responsible for helping Joe to become that, but he made a mistake, as you and I both know, and suggested that we have a mineral mines tax. Well, that was a red flag to some of the corporate bodies of this state, and Mr. Dixon was removed. Now, there's a connection between the Missoula Mercantile Company and the Anaconda Company? No, there never was a direct connection there, uh, except, yes, there is a connection in a way the history shows. If you remember this quote from Chapter 8, this is Ty Robinson speaking with Bob Brown in an oral history talking about the connection between the MMC and the AMC. I said we'd revisit it, and here it is again, in full. Yes, there is a connection in the way the history shows. I suppose you could say Marcus Daly was very active, and Marcus Daly was the Anaconda Company. Marcus Daly owned one-third of an interest in the Missoula Mercantile Company, and it was not known until I dissolved the company in the late 1950s and early 60s, and found to my chagrin that he did have a one-third interest. Two months after the sale of the Blackfoot Mill, the Missoula Mercantile Company was quietly reorganized. E.L. Bonner's stake was liquidated, and in his place, Marcus Daly acquired a one-third ownership stake, split with Hammond and McLeod. And Marcus Daly's descendants 
maintained their interest in the Missoula Mercantile until it was sold. Work against him, and here's Marcus Daly moving everything out of Butte and building the town of Hamilton, which was going to supersede Missoula, which was Hammond's town. Well, and of course I have recorded some recorded matters thereafter that because of that dispute, and finally Hammond recognized that this man Daly, who had been his partner in many of these operations, probably was going to outdo him. He made a deal with him and gave him a one-third interest in the Missoula Mercantile Company. Well, they, they seem to come and go, I mean, they seem to get in fights and then get together. That's what and, they do. And the same thing with Higgins and Hammond. For two reasons, go back and I've forth. concluded. Marcus was a good Irishman. He was a Catholic. Right. Hammond's an English Episcopalian. <laughs> right. And in those days, I suspect that was something that counted. Well, yeah, and I wonder about that because McLeod, Keese, all those guys from New Brunswick were all good Protestant Republicans, oh, yeah. and you had the Irish Catholic Democrats. Irish Catholic. And I can understand how they would, they would, they would split apart, but what brought them, what kept bringing them back together again? Greed. <laughs> okay. It had to be. I don't know what else. Marcus got mad over something, and he resigned as president of the First National Bank, which was owned by this octopus. Right. That was all right, Hammond. So he put John Keith in there as president. And right. place. But at that point, Marcus did not come back from that fight until... Hammond said, well, I'll cut you in for a third of what the interest is here in the market. Flush with cash from these two sales and the profits coming in from the Oregon railroads, Hammond began maniacally buying up timberlands and sawmills and officially re-entered the lumber business when, on March 20th, 1900, he incorporated the Hammond Lumber Company with capital from C.P. Huntington, Thomas B. Hubbard, Francis H. Leggett, John Claffin, and none other than Marcus Daly. He goes to Daly, and they've, and Daly's one of the six incorporators, including um, C.P. Huntington, A.B. Hammond, General uh, Hubbard is East Coast entrepreneur, and then uh, a guy named Chaplin who runs a massive department store in New York City. So these these are the ones who, and Hammond's the only lumberman among them, you know, because he needs the capital, right? He's forming yeah. this new multi-million dollar corp, you know, enterprise and he needs big capital. And so he goes. The Hammond Lumber Company was incorporated in New Jersey, which had recently passed very lenient incorporation laws with an initial capital of $3.6 million which would be close to $120 million today. Because San Francisco is really the New York of the West Coast, and, you know, or even the Pacific Rim. I mean, it's the center of power, money, capital, um, you know, of, of the West Coast. And in San, because he's like, I want to be, I want to be a player. Um, you know, Montana is, is, is the backwoods, and it'll always be the backwoods, you know, in his mind. And so... The Hammond Lumber Company headquarters were right at the center of San Francisco's Merchant Exchange, 
in a building whose front door opened to the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. Hammond moved into the ranks of the city's social elite, living in the Pacific Heights neighborhood with other lumber barons and titans of industry, and joining the Bohemian Club, the Organization of 100, and other ornate cabals of the West Coast's rich and powerful. And they all end up in San Francisco, and they all end up in the same neighborhood. Oh, so weird. Hammond's, yeah, Hammond's house that he, you know, and eventually buys in, uh, I want to say, about 1905 or something, um, he lives in for the rest of his life, is like right around the corner from the descendants of Pope and Talbot. Like these lumber barons all live on the same block. And then he just takes off. He just starts uh, buying up more and more lumberland, timberland, bumps into finding this lumber company that's going up for sale, um, the Vance Breadwood Company. Five months after incorporation, Hammond struck his biggest deal since the 1881 Northern Pacific contract when he had his million-dollar offer accepted to purchase the huge John Vance Mill and Lumber Company in Eureka, Humboldt County, Northern California. The deal included an 18-mile-long railroad with five locomotives, two steamships, four lumber schooners, 10,000 acres of redwood timberland, and the largest redwood lumber mill in the world at Samoa. Essentially, the deal catapulted Hammond into the top echelon of regional timber interests and provided everything he needed to form the basis of a massive West Coast lumbering empire. Continues, he had lumber mills in Oregon. Doesn't really go into Washington. Washington is more of warehousers, sort of backyard and domain. Um, and but he's competing pretty heavily in Oregon uh, and everything, you know, from San Francisco north uh, to the Washington border, sort of uh, his territory. Hammond brought out more family members, including his brother, Henry Hammond, George Fenwick, and another McLeod nephew, this time young George B. McLeod, to run the mill and help oversee the Hammond Lumber Company's expansion. In the early years of the 20th century, as McLeod and Dixon were engineering the allotment of the Flathead Reservation, Hammond was buying up hundreds of thousands of acres of prime timberlands up and down the Pacific coast. With a mercantile and First National Bank partner, Jack M. Keith, he picked up a $12,000 purchase near Albany, Oregon, along the Central Oregon Line. In 1901, he made what was then the largest purchase of unbroken timberland in history when he purchased 50,000 acres of Southern Pacific Grantlands in the Willamette Valley with a Wisconsin partner and 20,000 acres in Clatsop and Tillamook counties on the Northwest Oregon coast. Hammond also constructed a giant industrial facility across the bay from Astoria on land he'd been granted by the community as an enticement to complete the railroad. Hammond also formed a syndicate of salmon canneries called the Columbia River Packers Association to control the salmon fishing industry from Alaska to Oregon and built a hugely profitable shipping line hauling lumber from his coastal logging camps into the ports of San Francisco and Los Angeles. To give you a proper sense of the scale of Hammond's expansion at the time, Greg Gordon writes in his book that from 1895 to 1905, Hammond acquired enough raw materials to supply his empire for 50 years. 
Hammond was hugely successful by any measure, but he was still not satisfied. He was only a second-tier regional tycoon at best, and he wanted to ascend to the land of the giants and corner an entire industry. Starting in the early 1900s, and for the rest of his life, Hammond's main goal became to gain unified control of the world's redwood lumber supply. Redwood is the most valuable timber on Earth, but it only grows in a small part of the Northern California coast where a perfect climate and centuries of indigenous forest management cultivated the famous stands of giant old trees that we have today. Hammond began buying up redwood lands as soon as the Hammond Lumber Company was formed. And by 1903, he had more than 50,000 acres of redwood timberland containing billions of board feet of lumber. He, this is why he focuses on redwoods, because there's not that many redwoods. They're a niche market. They're highly valuable. And um, there's not that many redwood companies. And so he really spends most of his the last 30 years of his life trying to corner the redwood market. And he engages in all sorts of nefarious activities to try to, um, you know, consolidate and, you know, collude with other redwood companies. And they come up with agreements and then they disagree and they fall apart. But the Merck comes into this is that because of that incredible fluctuation of prices and the, the lack of stability in the lumber market, the timber companies cannot get credit in New York. Nobody will loan them money and they have to get loans to make their payroll. They have to get loans to buy, like Hammond, like he needs to buy more lumber companies. He needs to buy more timberland. He needs to make more investments because he wants to own the redwood industry. Yeah. And so the Merck, in large part because of Hammond's sort of financial acuity, has a triple A rating on Dun and Bradstreet, which is the credit rating agency and on Wall Street. And so the Merck can borrow money because of its credit rating in Wall Street. And they can take that money and slip it under the table over to the Hammond Lumber Company in California. And so the Merck is able to sort of be this transition to funnel Wall Street capital through Podunk, Montana to one of the largest you know, lumber companies on the West Coast. In 1907, Hammond sold his two Oregon railroads and reinvested the money into a burgeoning retail lumber operation, completing his company's vertical integration and taking over the entire supply chain for HLC lumber. They cut the trees, sawed the planks, shipped the timber into port, and sold it directly to the customer. As San Francisco rebuilt after the 1906 earthquake and fire, Hammond saw a huge jump in business. By the time 1910 rolled around and the Flathead Reservation was being thrown open, Hammond was one of the West Coast's premier lumbermen, owning much of the prime timberland in Oregon, as well as 94,000 acres of redwood lands in California, including land acquired fraudulently on the Klamath Indian Reservation. The arrangement between Hammond and McLeod wasn't always ideal. When Hammond left Montana, his deal with McLeod was that CH would have autonomy to run and build the business as he saw fit. And while Hammond was going to keep funneling loans through the company, 
He stressed in multiple correspondences to McLeod that he would do nothing to damage what he called the guilt-edged credit rating of the mercantile. But in reality, it seems like Hammond played it pretty fast and loose with mercantile loans, and it fell to McLeod to keep the enterprise pulling in enough cash so that the guilt-edged credit rating didn't take a hit. McLeod usually found out about the loans Hammond was taking from his letters, and usually only after they had been agreed, leaving McLeod to reactively scramble to make the finances work. My dear Herb, I have today arranged with the National Park Bank of New York for a line of credit to the Missoula Mercantile Company to the extent of $100,000. The rule of the moneylenders in New York is to keep a balance of one quarter of the loan, so we will be expected to keep from twenty dollars to $25,000 to our credit. These consistent demands and Hammond's growing disinterest in any of the other details of the Montana businesses did lead to moments where things got a little frayed. Um, and there was times where, where McLeod would loan, and he's always griping about it in the letters back and forth. He's like, well, I guess we can loan you, you know, ten, and it was not never, it was $10,000 here, $10,000 there to make their payroll. I want to give you a little, read you a letter. It's, it's just a very local little thing. The letter in and of itself doesn't mean anything, except that it's a paradigm of a problem which is very old and is still with us. This letter was written in 1908, and it was written by C.H. McLeod, McLeod Ash. Uh, he, at that time, was the manager of what was called the Missoula Mercantile Company. Now they call it the bomb. <laughs> and he was writing to his boss, who owned the Missoula Mercantile Company, which was a great big outfit in 1908, Mr. Andrew B. Hammond of the Hammond Arcade. Another condition that makes it hard to advance Missoula is this. The Clark interests own the water company. You control the bank. Hammond, incidentally, had moved to Oregon. You, Mr. Eddie, Eddie Avenue, and Mrs. Daly, Daly Avenue, control three-fourths of the stock of the Missoula Mercantile Company, and none of you live in Missoula, and only a couple of you live in Montana. It is awfully hard to build up a town under conditions of this kind, and in fact, Unless some other arrangements can be made that are now in force, I cannot see what is going to build up Missoula. There are a good many things that Missoula needs before it can amount to anything. One is a good hotel, but who will build it? Mr. Connell laughed at the idea. You said it would always be, it would be unprofitable. But without some accommodation that other towns have, we cannot expect to be progressive. If you, Mr. Eddy, or others do not care to put your money into this kind of proposition and will form a new company and take preferred stock for your interests, the common stockholders will undertake to carry out their improvements and we will surrender our dividends for such purposes. This is the only way that these matters can be carried out unless you older and larger stockholders will join in making these improvements. You always say that in order to do these things, you will have to waive your dividends. Indeed, you will. Yeah, this does not, however, seem to be the wish of the older stockholders. But unless there are some sacrifices made along these lines, Missoula is as big as it will ever be. If you're all here, I'm satisfied that you would be interested in these matters. But Mrs. Daly never comes to Missoula, and rarely to Montana. Mr. Eddie very seldom comes even to Montana. And you occasionally give me five minutes on the state station platform. I beg your pardon, sir, but it is not sufficient. He was a fellow of some courage. 
that illustrates a problem which has plagued Missoula's, not merely Missoula, but all of our cities, which has plagued our agriculture from beginning the beginning to this day. So tuck that in the back of your mind. Hammond even considered selling the mercantile repeatedly throughout the decade as his expansion blossomed on the coast, but McLeod always talked him out of it. And Hammond would be glad he did, as the Merc was not done proving its worth. In 1910, William Taft's Interior Department rekindled the investigation into the old Montana Improvement Company timber poaching that had been simmering since 1895. Hammond immediately put McLeod to work bracing old employees and getting rid of evidence. I know that you know, McLeod wrote to one former employee, that the Big Blackfoot Milling Company never cut any timber in the Blackfoot country illegally. McLeod even arranged for a meeting between Hammond and the chief of the land office field division, where it seems likely Hammond tried to induce him to get the investigation quashed. They even leaned on their old friend, Senator Tom Carter, to try and get the investigation shut down. But when Carter dragged his feet, hoping to wait until after the 1910 election, Hammond and McLeod trashed him and helped install a man named Henry Myers to replace him. But in 1912, the government once again brought indictments against Hammond for the Improvement Company's depredations, this time charging him with illegally removing 21,185,410 board feet of timber and filing suit for over $200,000. While this, while this is a fraction of what the Improvement Company had actually cut, and a relatively inconsequential sum for Andrew Hammond, the lumber company had made $875,000 of net profit that same year, he and McLeod still fought it tooth and nail. If there was any timber cut on public lands, we do not know of it, McLeod wrote to another employee and another Hammond at the time. And if you know of any timber cut on public lands, of course, I wish you would forget about it, as you say you are willing to do. While the timber suits were headed to trial, Hammond was also under a second investigation for fraudulent purchases of public and railroad grant lands in Oregon and California. To quash the land fraud investigation, Hammond and McLeod got the two Montana senators they controlled, Henry Myers and our old friend Joseph Dixon, to introduce a bill that would declare lumbermen innocent purchases of the land-grant lands. While the senators were working their magic in Congress, a jury returned a verdict in the timber suits. Hammond was found guilty and ordered to pay a reduced settlement of $51,000. The government approached Hammond with a deal, pay the settlement, and they would lay off the land fraud case and give him clear title. But confident Dixon and Myers would use their places on the Public Lands Committee to get the bill passed, Hammond refused the deal and appealed the ruling. In 1918, he finally agreed to settle for a full $7,066.61. In any event, these suits drag on year after year after year. They were not settled, incidentally, until the year 1918. In that year, before the Supreme Court of the United States, 
and three of the lawsuits got all the way to the Supreme Court. Andrew Hammond was fined $7,066.16 without costs. The, there was no way to know how much they poached in terms of value. I once put a graduate student on it. He came up with a ballpark figure of about $30 million, for which Andrew B. Hammond was fined $7,066.16. At the onset of World War I in Europe in 1914, the lumber industry took a nosedive. As the war effectively shut down the export lumber trade, Hammond again had to draw on the low interest funnel of the mercantile to borrow money to meet his payroll. But as the war effort mounted up, his fortune changed again. For the first time, airplanes were being used on a massive scale in a military conflict, and the US government needed a huge supply of Sitka spruce to build its air force. Hammond had been buying up timberlands for years, and as they were looking for a partner to ramp up production, the army determined that he was the largest individual owner of Sitka spruce in the world, and summoned him to a meeting in Washington, D.C. At the meeting, Hammond essentially told the army he would be happy to help, but he needed their assistance with a little labor dispute. The IWW and other unions led a huge strike throughout the logging camps of the Pacific Northwest in 1917, the same year Frank Little was killed in Butte. And Hammond's camps, which pushed lumberjacks in grueling shifts and absolutely squalid conditions, were no exception. When the army came looking for Sitka, Hammond told them that they could have his lumber if they helped him break some strikes. The army's response was actually pretty remarkable they created a new civilian military trade union called the Legion of Loyal Loggers and Lumbermen, ran by a former prison warden, which essentially conscripted 25,000 lumberjacks into a military unit called the Spruce Production Division. The SPU attempted to keep production quotas high and stamp out radicalism, by getting IWW organizers drafted into the war in Europe and then flooding logging camps with a dystopian, union-busting effort called the religion that browbeat workers with military routines and patriotic American propaganda. The full story of the four L's and the SPU is totally crazy, but it's way too long to get into here, so if you want to learn more about that, I would recommend our friend Greg Gordon's book, When Money Grew on Trees. The efforts of the SPD and a tide of rabid patriotism that followed the entry into World War I devastated the budding labor movement and eliminated Hammond's union problems. While the war machine filled his coffers with lucrative contracts for plane construction and shipbuilding. After the war ended, Hammond's retail lumber business exploded into life as a huge tide of construction and development took over Southern California. In 1920, just as Joe Dixon was running to govern the broke state of Montana, the price of California lumber had doubled since 1915, and Hammond was pulling in $8 million from his Los Angeles lumberyards alone. As the profits came in, 
Hammond again moved to buy up available Redwood acres continuously, using more mercantile company loans to finance Redwood timberland purchases. In 1922, Hammond's huge Tongue Point Mill burned down, devastating the town of Astoria, Oregon, which had given him such generous subsidies to build a railroad there less than 30 years earlier. Hammond promised to rebuild it, but never did, and the town took decades to recover. By 1923, the Hammond Lumber Company was Southern California's largest lumber supplier. They claimed 65 lumber yards in Los Angeles and 300 more in the surrounding region, including the largest lumber yard in the world. Hammond Lumber built the mansions and the movie sets of LA's Roaring Twenties. Their total net profit was nearly $5 million, which Hammond turned into two new steamships, including the world's largest lumber carrier at the time with a 4.5 million board foot capacity, the SS Missoula. Throughout this period, Hammond was also experiencing a Citizen Kane-style decline in his personal life, growing increasingly estranged from his children. Then, in 1926, his wife, Florence, who the town near Missoula is named after, died. There's a really depressing telegram Hammond wrote to McLeod at this point, asking him to visit in San Francisco because he is all alone in a big, empty house full of servants. In the 1920s and 30s, Hammond made two huge purchases of smaller lumber companies in Oregon and California, solidifying his position in the coastal range and redwood forests. Hammond created two new subsidiaries with the merger, the Hammond Tillamook Lumber Company and the Hammond and Little River Redwood Company. These acquisitions furthered the ultimate goal of controlling the Pacific Coast lumber trade, but he arguably overextended the Hammond Lumber Company's finances and settled every part of Hammond's empire, including the mercantile, with $4.25 million in debt. The HLC parent company took up a quarter of the debt, and the mercantile contributed $650,000. The other $2.35 million was sold to banks. The Hammond Lumber Company was also now stuck with two debt-laden subsidiaries, just as the world economy was reaching a nadir in the Great Depression. But Hammond was into his 80s at this point, and though he had stayed remarkably vital for suffering from so many chronic health issues for most of his life, he didn't have the strength to keep forcing his empire along through another financial crisis. Andrew Hammond died at his home on July 15, 1934. At his death, he had a personal estate worth $60 million, about $2 billion today. But the business he left behind was in critical condition. After Hammond's death, a power struggle over who would take over resulted in an outside lawyer named Robert Lay taking over. Lay had been hired by the lumber company's shareholders to review the state of the company after Andrew's death and was shocked to find an overextended company hemorrhaging money and falling apart at the seams. Hammond's big acquisitions of the Tillamook and Little River Redwood Company had saddled the Hammond Company with massive operating costs and debt, and Lay argued that they had been unnecessary and ill-advised. Lay also found that managers had grown fearful 
of Hammond's tyrannical rule and had institutionalized a practice of hiding problems from his attention in order to avoid his wrath. As a result, almost all of the lumber company operations were remarkably shoddy and out of date. The board appointed Lay president and gave him authority to implement his recommendations. Lay immediately closed down the organ mills and put them up for sale. But then Hammond returned from the grave in a way, as his son Leonard managed to take back control of the company in 1936. Leonard took over a company still laden with $4 million of debt. But he had been the company's lead salesman under his father, and he set to pay off that debt through huge retail expansion into foreign markets. Leonard had the spirit of his father about him, And by 1940, they had cut the debt in half, and they were bringing in a profit of $586,000 a month in sales. As the U.S. entered World War II, Leonard and the Hammond Lumber Company were again positioned to profit heavily, and their lumber yards received massive orders from the government. Hammond Lumber was shipped off to build barracks and cantonments for soldiers and nurseries for rubber plantations. And three million feet of Hammond lumber even went to build the first Japanese internment camp at Manzanar in Southern California in 1942. Japanese and Italian Americans were also interned at Fort Missoula during the war. Leonard Hammond died of leukemia in 1946. In his 10 years at the helm, he had turned a $4 million debt into a $5 million cash reserve. George McLeod, Andrew's nephew and C.H.'s cousin, became the fourth and final president of the HLC. As he sold the company to the gluttonous conglomerate of Georgia Pacific in 1956 for $75 million, which would be more like $750 million today. The remarkable turnover Leonard oversaw can be attributed to any number of different factors, but there's evidence to suggest it could have all come down to the tried and true method of his father, returning to the reliable mercantile money machine. First, uh, I hadn't been in my job at the... You understood I graduated from law school, and the first job I got was right at the Missoula Mercus oh, Inner really? House Council. Really? Oh, yes. What, what year I went was to that? work, huh? What year was that? 1948. Okay. April the 1st, 1948. And the, the, Hammond family, the, the Hammond family still own stock in the Mercus? Yes, they own stock in the Mercus until the day that it was completely... Uh, liquidated. A lot of people in the town doesn't know all of the things that went on. An example, I don't know this should be repeated probably. I suppose it happened years ago. We were also interested in the Hammond Lumber Company in uh, San Francisco. And at one time they were about to go broke. And they borrowed a half a million dollars from us. And many years later, they were successful, and he sold out for $95 million. Mr. McLeod had some, I don't know if I should tell this or not, but Mr. McLeod, Mr. McLeod had some stock in Hammond Lumber Company, but I think they paid maybe five or $6,000 for it. I'm not sure. I could be wrong on, this, on that figure. But when they, when they sold the Hammond Lumber Company in the settlement, they got... He, he got a million dollars, 
and Mrs. McLeod got $238,000. I'm talking about <coughs> Walter McLeod now, but where I was talking about Mr. M Mr. Senior McLeod, Walter McLeod, uh, who was, was uh, my boss, took over the business when Mr. C.H. McLeod died. Walter ran this operation here. He, oh, he ran the, the Merck. The, the Merck here. He didn't have anything to do with the Hammond Company in California. Oh, okay. I think he felt the, the pressure almost of the Hammond people. And by the Hammond people, do you mean not even the Hammond family? Right. In California. Uh -huh. And during the years that I was at the Missoula Merck, Hammond people would come back. Uh, each year for an annual meeting of the Merck, oh, huh. since they were still stockholders yeah. until the end. And Hammond had a, uh, he used to put the pressure on Walter, I know, because oh, huh. Walter, uh, <clears throat> Walter's secretary said to me, Mr. McLeod has to go to California tomorrow. I said, he does, yeah. He says, I got to make reservations on the train right now, getting down there. Oh. Yeah, I said the Hammonds are demanding that he come down. Hmm. I, to well, I mean, it, it, the Merck must have been important enough that they it was the cash cow. Some. Yeah, this cash cow business is, I think, was lingered on. I don't know how long it went, but it was obvious that he was he had to go down and report to them. I think in Walter's mind. The Hammond interest in the Missoula Merck was the major interest. Ty Robinson and J.E. Myers, both of whom we've heard from before, joined the Missoula Mercantile under C.H. McLeod's leadership in the 1930s and 40s. Robinson was in-house attorney and Myers ran the grocery department. Decades after the Merck shut down, in oral history interviews in the late 1900s and early 2000s, Robinson and Myers recounted to historians how the Hammond Lumber Company remained the dominant ownership interest in the Missoula Merck until it was sold in 1956. Myers even describes a $500,000 loan from the Missoula Mercantile Company at a time when the Hammond Lumber Company was, quote, about to go broke. While he doesn't elaborate on the year, he suggests C.H.'s son, Walter, who took over the business after C.H. died, was able to buy dirt-cheap Hammond Lumber Company stock as part of the deal that he then cashed in on when the lumber company was sold. Myers began working at the Merck in 1939, which also suggests that if the loan happened during his tenure, it would have gone to the Hammond Lumber Company either under Leonard Hammond's leadership or that of C.H.'s nephew, George McLeod. Myers' recounting is unfortunately anecdotal and a little sparse with the details, and we're unlikely at this point to ever find out for certain the particulars of the Merck's finances, since all of their records were destroyed. They had records at the Merck of the MIC. I wish they'd have gone into those Looking back on it, I really should have just taken a lot of time and and written all of that stuff up. Yeah. Made a complete. Were record. there any records from from the Merck that survived? No. 
They were all thrown out, unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to anybody at the time. They just took them out and threw them in the dump. And, and I went to the dump and tried to get into them. But by that time, you couldn't get anything. They were pretty well mashed up and all covered over. No. <laughs> I by accident got a hold of these, at least the information. But it suggests that the special relationship between the mercantile and the Hammond Empire in California outlived both Andrew Hammond and C.H. McLeod and may have even helped save the Hammond Lumber Company and keep it in family control. Robinson also recollects details of the cheap loan funnel continuing into the 1950s and describes the act of courtship the Merck continued to receive from the biggest financial institutions in the world even into the 1960s, when the Merck itself was sold off. You wanted to build a house. You couldn't get a bank loan. You went in and sat down and talked to either Bungie or CH. You talked to CH, he'd probably kick you in his next office, Vice President Bungie. They'd make you a loan. I got ready to build a house in 1948, 49. Yeah, they charge interest. Uh, Do they operate as a bank? They operated within. They had their own federal credit union within the store, too. Later, and that was the one that made the loans rather than the Merck outright. That federal credit union was set up about 1955. Well, I bought some property Bungie is talking to me about it. I said, I'm going to build a house. i got to go over to the building alone and see if I can get a mortgage to get a loan. Well, he said, uh, "What? where are you going to get your lumber? And I said, well, I haven't thought of that yet. He said, the reason I ask is he said, Loggerquist down at Hamilton owes us a lot of money. Incidentally, he said, I'm going to give you that to go collect. And he said, uh, why don't you go down and get your lumber down there, buy it there, and we'll give him credit for it against his bill here. Well, I said, that I wouldn't know how to do that. Sure. He said, uh, take a truck, take a, <laughs> one of our trucks. And he said, go down there on weekends or whenever you want to. And so many nights after work, I'd wheel down to Lagerquist and load up lumber, bring it, Enough for a couple of days for my contracting people that were building my house. Go back and get another load of lumber. That's my house today is built from Missoula Work Company. <laughs> That's the way they did things. Uh-huh. Then, then he asked me about my loan. He said, oh, did you get a loan? Yeah. What's your interest rate? Well, I said I was a veteran, so I got it at 5%. Okay, he said, That's not bad. He said, I don't think I could do any better for you. This is off the record in a way, but in 1950s, <clears throat> the Federal Reserve is not delivering money in early days, and they haven't started that yet. The Missoula Merck had $10 million sitting in the safe in the Missoula Mercantile Company office here. 
which is now Macy's, on Friday afternoons and Saturday mornings. The banks were still open on Saturday. You'd have the president or somebody in one of those banks coming to the Merck getting money, and we'd put them in paper sacks. And you'd see maybe the president, Ted Jacobs, walk across the street to the First National with a couple of sacks. And you'd see maybe <laughs> Bill Warden from the Western Montana walking back down the street with a couple, three sacks of money. Plain day going down the street. So that give them enough money to run for the day. Oh, because the Mercs owned, owned the bank. Well, no. Or is it because they're, they're, they're the Merck had money. the money? One day he came to me and he said, You know, here it is May. We're going to start harvesting at the end of June across Montana and we'll be buying grain. He said, Get a hold of our bank, Morgan Bank in New York City, and go ahead and borrow three million. We got 10 million in the bank laying back here, but we're going to borrow three million. Well, I go get the controller, the vice president of finance. Yeah, he said, I'll take care of it. So we borrow it. And along about the middle of August, my boss comes to me and said, have you paid off that loan yet to Morgan? No, I said, we're still buying grain. Well, he said, we ought to be about through here pretty quick. He said, that interest, you know, is eating us up. We were paying 1% interest. Hmm. We're, we were outstanding credit with Morgan. The Morgan... Is that Morgan Drexel? The Morgan people would right. come twice a year, take everybody, all the executive crew out to dinner and fate them and take them up to Flathead Lake and have a boat overnight, put them up in the hotel up there. And... The Lloyds of London, of course, did the same thing. Their man came twice, maybe three times a year. He sent me presents all the time, fancy presents. And Christmas time, we got a big box of California fruit, big enough for uh, two families. They, uh, they were nice people to work with. The Merck had an excellent reputation. It was the best quality store between Dayton's in Minneapolis and uh, Marshall Fields in, in Seattle. We had people that came here from all over. They came from Spokane to buy clothes. Their hardware business ran from Sheridan, Wyoming to Wenatchee, Washington their wholesale hardware. And stop and think, they had a hardware operation in Spokane. The Anaconda had a hardware operation in Butte. There was nothing in Billings. That's why they had all of Eastern Montana. If you want to shut that thing off, I'll tell you a story about myself. Throughout the northern half of the world. 
the last great stand of Sequoia sempervirens survives in a narrow band of forest in the fog belt along the northern California coast. No other living thing in the world grows as tall. Few trees live to be as old. The Sequoia sempervirens, the enduring redwood, a living link to the age of dinosaurs. Georgia Pacific continued logging redwood until 1978, when the last vestiges of uncut redwood timber along the prairie and redwood creeks, which Hammond had bought in 1900 for $16.50 an acre, were purchased by the U.S. government for more than $400 an acre, a 16,000% increase. That Hammond land bought back by the government constituted most of the redwood trees left in the world, but was still less than 3% of what the redwood population was before logging began. Many thousands of those trees were cut down by Hammond-owned companies, funded by loans ran through the mercantile funnel. Once in government hands, the tiny strip of land was made up into much of what is today the Redwoods National Park. We're going to take one more break here. When we come back, we're going to conclude this series of land grab by going back to where we started the whole thing off, looking at the historical legacy of the Missoula Mercantile and Andrew Hammond in western Montana. Landgrab is proud to be part of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the Montana Mint's other shows, which include Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, which I hosted with author Brian D'Ambrosio. In that show, we dig into some of the most interesting murder mysteries in Montana history. They also have the Grizz Fan Podcast, the number one podcast this side of Montana, focused on all things Grizz football. The Montana Mint Sports Pod is a weekly show focused on all things Big Sky Conference, and the Montana Trivia Championship is a game show devoted entirely to our great state. You can get all of these shows on all of your major podcast apps, and you can check out the Montana Mint on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. We're ready. Yeah. Fantastic. Good morning. My name's John Ingen. Thank you for taking the time to join us this morning. Uh, we uh, are lucky to uh, be um, enjoying the hospitality of our friends here at First Interstate Bank. This is, a, this is a great corner in Missoula as well, and the views here are spectacular, and what's going on in this building in terms of commerce is spectacular as well. I don't often read from remarks, but today I will, uh, simply because I want to make sure that I say what I mean to say, uh, and I don't even need my glasses this morning. So when I was a little boy in the 1960s, growing up in Missoula, Montana, uh, the mercantile was a place. I remember visiting the store with my dad, who's now gone, who would scour boxes of sink parts downstairs in the hardware department looking for that obscure piece that would make the weird sink in our little house on South 2nd Street work for another week or two. Uh, I remember sitting on Santa's lap upstairs in that building and ha I have a picture of my dad who one year decided to sit on Santa's lap himself in an effort to make me laugh uh, and it worked. I remember the best piece of candy of my life, which uh, came from a jar in 
the mercantile that was surrounded by lots of other jars of candy, as I recall. It was an orange stick with white stripes. My mother bought it for me. She had one too, and I think it was her favorite piece of candy as well. And I remember years later buying shirts at the Bon Marche with my own money. Then as a grown-up married man, I bought furniture from the Bon. And even later, I bought a coat from Macy's. And I don't remember a lot about the building, frankly. But I remember the people and the place. I remember the time, the activity, the smells, the sounds, the tastes, the laughs, the smiles. That clip, if you remember from all the way back in the first chapter, is current Missoula mayor John Angan speaking about the legacy of the company and its iconic building on the corner of Higgins and Front Street as it was being slated to be torn down and replaced with a new hotel. We talked at the beginning of the show about how the demolition of the mercantile building became a flashpoint of contention in Montana's ongoing wave of transformation and gentrification, and how it revealed some of the fault lines in the identity crises that are coming with those changes. And if I had my druthers, which I don't, some days I would turn back the clock and I'd eat that piece of candy all over again as a little boy with my mother or hold my dad's hand while waiting in line to talk to Santa Claus about my desires or be the young married man buying furnishings for his first home. And if I had my druthers, we'd figure out a way to return an old cobbled together center of commerce to its former rustic glory. But after six years of folks kicking tires and dashing hopes, the practical matter is that the perfect is the enemy of the good. And what is before us is a good project. The project you're going to learn about today is a good project. I appreciate the emotion that comes with the idea of an old building coming down. The push to save the Merc and other relics of Montana's frontier glory days is born out of a very understandable and objectively commendable desire to keep hold of the places that connect us with our origins that let a community maintain a through line of identity and character. The problem with that is that nostalgia is rooted in a fundamentally incomplete picture of our actual origins. In the specific case of the Merck, its reputation today largely stems from the recollections of people like Ty Robinson, Dorothy Smola, C.H. Rittenhauer, people whose livelihoods were directly improved by being part of the octopus. But what the enterprise created, and what some people gained from it, is only one part of the story. And the fact that that is the dominant part of the story in most of our collective recollection is the result of intentional action by the Merck Enterprise to obscure its true nature and present a sanitized face to the public. To get the complete picture, you have to also look at what the enterprise destroyed, what it dispossessed, who it stole from. That's what we set out to do with this project, to present as much of this complete picture as we can, to show what the legacy of the Merck, of the Anaconda Company, of Montana, 
of the West itself really is. The vast, destructive empire of the Hammond Lumber Company used the mercantile funnel as a springboard to launch its behemoth expansion. And Andrew consistently returned to the Merc for loans to buy timberlands, cover debts, and even meet payroll. People like Hammond and McLeod and Joe Dixon, enterprises like the Merc, are important to understand. Not only because they became the primary vehicles through which white settlers colonized and exploited the land and indigenous populations, but also because they became the main vehicle through which Montana exploited itself. The Merck maneuvered its way into being a bedrock institution whose welfare was tied into the welfare of the entire region. And we treated it like that and supported it like that. But the whole time, its purpose was literally as a funnel for Eastern Capital, a laundromat to push money through and send it off west. And the real legacy of this ill-gotten empire is deeply embedded, not just in western Montana, but the whole west coast. In Montana, the octopus wrapped its tentacles around every key institution west of the divide. The railroad, the entire grocery and retail business, the church, the banks, the whole real estate market, the vast majority of the agriculture business, and even the university were started, negotiated for, or funded by Hammond and his interests. That's a massive footprint on the state that was all made possible through the theft of public timber and indigenous land. Throughout the whole West Coast, Hammond, Daly, and their enterprises left lasting scars of environmental decay that still dominate and inconvenience our lives today. Well, I I think all these guys, you know, drank from the Adam Smith well of um, the idea that, that what is good for profits is good for society. That, and, and we accepted that as, as, as a nation. I mean, our laws reflect that. Our society reflects that. Our values reflect that. I mean, we accept that premise that, that private wealth is for the benefit of society. Um, you know, even if we don't want to put it in those terms, I think our, our you know, culturally, socially, and certainly legally, we accept that. But you look at what the legacy of the Hammond Lumber Company is, and it's it's devastated communities, impoverished um, all of northern you know Northern California timber companies in, in Oregon, um, the you know complete ecological collapse. There's only two percent of the redwoods left. Um, <laughs> you want to talk about wildfire? Massive fires don't burn as hot or as intense or as widespread in in wilderness areas. In the, where fires start, spread are the most destructive are the industrialized timberlands, places that have been logged over right with an immense amount of slash. They're second growth, third growth, fourth growth. They have incredible dog hair. All those 
fire suppression and practices are a result of seeing timber as a commodity. The trees are a commodity value to be exploited and turned into cash, turned into wealth for an individual. Um, and our whole society creates that idea. And so I think that's sort of the, the, the legacy that we're left with is, is that the exploitation of workers, the exploitation of, of ecosystems has given us impoverished communities an impoverished ecosystem and catastrophic wildfires. And what do we have to show for it? Well, some people made a lot of money off of it. I mean, there's two kinds of history. There's capital H history, and then there's small H history. And so small H history is what happened, right? The facts, this is what happened. Capital H history is the stories that we tell ourselves about small age history about what happened and so for a large part of the 20th century montanans um didn't like the well first first thing hammond was not well liked <laughs> people in missoula in western montana did not like him as a person uh the way they did daily he was not personable uh they and so he had a lot of uh made a lot of personal enemies um and animosities before he left and i would suggest that you're you know from helena it's just that people in montana especially in 20th century it's probably changing now don't like it when someone leaves montana for something better and does better with them so you know what i'm talking about like absolutely they went away and they're no longer a part of us who stuck it out here in i mean of course now montana is a nice place i mean perceptively yeah but for a long time it was considered you know the backwoods or the you know it's like well we stuck it out and you know those guys who left well the hell with them and I think that's why McLeod and, and the Merck are sort of held up and Hammond sort of, you know, held at arm's length. Um, and then, the, you know, the Merck now, again, once I think once the, that the building was, um, you know, turned into a hotel, that that, that in itself, um, I mean, while it was still the bond, I mean, maybe I'm dating myself, you know, it, it uh it still had sort of a cachet, you know, mm-hmm. and it's still known. And there's, again, there were people alive who worked there. And I think, you know, they're starting to, you know, die off and um, it fades into into history. And it's sort of, you know, the only thing that's left are the stories we tell. The world Andrew Hammond, Marcus Daly, the Missoula Mercantile, and the Anaconda Company created peaked in the first two decades of the 20th century, and it can feel like a world that is relegated to history. But in so many ways, our current world is a direct continuation of that world, the result of its consequences. The line from that Angan speech on the Merck's demolition that sticks with me the most is his final line, when he asserts his view that the new development is in keeping with what the spirit of the Merck has been all along. I appreciate the emotion 
that comes with the idea of an old building coming down. But the building is not the icon for me. That corner, though, is iconic. And the people who conducted their business there, the proprietors, the clerks, the customers, the bankers, the accountants, the corporations, the ne'er-do-wells, the folks who made that corner something, are gone. The building is empty, and its ghosts ought to be sad because they want to haunt someone alive in a place that's vibrant. This project brings commerce, it brings life, it brings people to a place that deserves all of that and more. The community will benefit, the past will be honored, and history will be made every day in a new building, in an old place that will last for another hundred years. And now, at the end of this journey, I think it's pretty clear that Angan is right. The mercantile grew in lockstep with the tide of American capitalist colonization of the West. And as that American capital consolidated ever more into behemoth multinational conglomerates centered in faraway seats of power, so too did the Merc. And I think if Andrew Hammond were still alive today, selling the building so it can be torn down and local businesses can pay rent to Marriott is probably just the sort of thing he'd be keen on. The motivation for this project was to use the story of the mercantile's growth as a vehicle to tell the bigger story of Montana's colonial origins. Our goal was to complicate the state's rose-colored origin myths by providing a more complete picture. We told the story the way we did in this very long-form narrative way because we think it's important to see how this all unfolded step by step over what, in historical terms, was an extremely short amount of time. We wanted people to listen to this more complete origin story and think about the ways it lines up with the state today. Think about the characters you recognize in our modern narratives, the roles we fit into in the dramas unfolding today. Our preeminent guide along this journey, whose penchant for oratory we've encountered throughout the show, has been K. Ross Toole, speaking in a series of lectures filmed for public television in 1981. But this state of optimism, represented by that editorial, did not alter as we did indeed dig into the 20th century in Montana, or perhaps I should say, as the 20th century dug into us, because, hello, pup dogger. <clears throat> in Montana, at least, and as you know, vast promise seemed constantly to stumble and falter. We were beset, the state was, with withering drought. Uh, there was almost continual violence and strife in the mining camps and lumber camps. These strikes were rarely peaceful. There were disasters, both man-made and natural, which plagued us. And as you know, surrounded by vast natural wealth, we almost always felt short of cashing in. Somehow, the real wealth always flowed outward. Toole's full name was Kenneth Ross, named after his maternal grandfather, who was a supervisor at the Bonner Mill for years, and his paternal grandfather was one of Marcus Daly's right-hand men. 
All this just to say, Kairos came from a position of great privilege, directly bequeathed from Anaconda and Hammond operations. Even his storied tenure at UM was funded by an endowment created by Hammond. But he still dedicated his life and his position to understanding, exposing, and repudiating what those corporations had done to Montana. I don't know whether you know it or not, but Montanans indirectly, at least, founded and subsidized the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. We never got one in Montana. We, the great museums in New York City, were enormously enriched by masterpieces, fundamentally paid for again by Montana wealth. But we couldn't even develop a museum until the 1950s. Long before the Great Depression, as you know, Montana had its own private depression. 70% of our banks failed uh, between 1919 and 1925. Uh, some 80 to 90,000 homesteaders flooded in. Uh, between 1910 and 1919, 60 or 70,000 flooded out between 19 and 1924, leaving behind them, of course, a sorely wounded land and hundreds of collapsing towns and 23 new debt-laden counties. And so, into the 1930s and the Depression, into the 40s and war, into the 50s and 60s, when we shared, but marginally, in a great surge in national affluence, so that in retrospect, I think it's unavoidable that you have to say nothing so characterized our development as promised never realized, vast wealth of which only a tiny portion stayed at home, that we have been battered and beaten and lied to and lied about. In the 1820s, as you're aware, no area in North America could match our wealth in furs, Later, no area in the West could match our wealth in gold and silver and copper. Nowhere on the Great Plains was the grass so thick and nutritious. No one raised better cattle. We once produced more wool than any other state in the Union. West of the Divide, our timber resources seemed limitless. We had enough water to last a thousand years. And then you add oil, and now, of course, you add coal. So that we were rich, in many respects, we still are. But call it colonialism, call it exploitation, explain it any way you want. Those who lived here, those who stayed here, those who put their roots down, kept very little. And those who governed here, with very few exceptions indeed, did very little to help anyone else keep anything. The lecture series we pulled from was actually filmed after Tool was diagnosed with terminal cancer and they represent the eminent historian analyzing the 20th century from its end. Looking back at the century past, Toole lays out the cycles of trauma that have perpetuated throughout its length, imploring his students to learn some lessons from the past. But he also looks at the century ahead, our century, with warnings that sound prophetic when you hear them today. I think that it might be wise for us to remember what Hegel said, the only thing that history teaches us is that history teaches us nothing. Or, if you don't like that, take Santiana, a people who ignore their history are condemned to repeat it, and we had damn well better be careful about the future, because great corporate forces are again headed our way, and we have been there before, and we should not go back again. America has not yet run out of space but it has about run out of quality space. And it is quality space that Montana has in abundance. 
beautiful space, clean space, quiet space, space rich in the qualities which Americans, having increasingly lost it elsewhere, are now seeking as they have never sought it before. And while supply and demand is not an immutable economic law, it does remain true that if what a people want becomes more and more limited in supply, the demand for it becomes greater and greater, and properly handled, the value of it increases accordingly. Now, if space and distance have been Montana's historical curse, and they have been, they have now become Montana's blessing, and it would be a terrible irony if we were to turn a curse into a blessing, only to turn it back into a curse. And that is precisely where our own control enters the picture, because Montanans and Montanans alone can prevent that from happening. Nobody else can. If we choose short-range profits, we can indeed pollute and sell our water. We can develop our valleys. We can strip our coal. We can cut our trees and say, as we have always said before, you come, you come one and all, you bring some cash, and you rip it, and you rape it, and you rob it, and you move on. But we could say, we have the legal right to say, you come, but you come on our terms. 21st century Montana is undeniably a different place than 20th century Montana. And in many ways, it's better. Clouds of arsenic smoke don't waft out of the Anaconda smelter anymore. The Bonner Milltown Superfund site has made huge progress cleaning up its polluted mess. The CSKT have regained control of a majority of land on the reservation, the SKQ Dam, and the new water compact with the government. But so many of the same problems remain. Different only in degree, not in kind. As tourism and real estate replace mining and logging, the overall picture of the state may look more attractive, but as the housing crisis in our cities and the continued decay of our small towns gets worse every day, it becomes clear many of those improvements are purely cosmetic. And the underlying trends of exploitation and corporate consolidation remain the same. Sotheby's, Berkshire Hathaway, Northwestern Energy, Discovery Land Corps, Pause Up. These names have replaced the Amalgamateds, the Mercantiles, and the Flathead Information Agencies of old, but their function is the same. It's not too late to save Montana, and as the perseverance of the CSKT in reclaiming their culture and their reservation shows, it is not too late to even turn the dial back the other way. But we can't keep doing the same things and expect different results. Montanan identity puts so much stake into the idea that only those of us who are from here have the real, authentic appreciation for the place. But as I hope this show has communicated in an informative and an engaging way, as far as white Montana is concerned, that authentic appreciation has far too often only extended as far as it relates to our own benefit, our own enjoyment. What I hope listeners come away from this show with 
is a more honest assessment of what Montana and the West is, and a more honest acknowledgement of who has always had its best interests at heart. I hope after listening, as you move throughout these places we've talked about, as you encounter Montana's conflicts today, you'll stop and think about some of the people and events we talked about in the show. Times when things could have been different if different ideas had been listened to, different people empowered. And maybe just connect that to moments in our struggles today where things might be different if different ideas are heard and different people empowered. I want to conclude this series here with some final words of wisdom from our friend Steve Lozar and, of course, K. Ross Tool. But I don't have a good... I don't have a good solution. And I don't think that I'm the only one that feels that. I think there's, there's a... Um, I, I think there's a, a certain frustration that many, many of us locals feel. Um, and that's a threat. That's a real threat. I mean, can you imagine? I went to graduate school at San Diego State and um, lived in a little town uh, called uh, Ocean Beach. And, um, and my wife and I lived right on Sunset Cliffs in a ratty little house and, um, that overlooked the ocean. And um, you could throw a rock into the ocean from our place. Um, and eventually, prices got so high, especially for a college student, that we had to, we had to move inland where we could afford it. Our little house was 125 a month. And we couldn't afford it because condos were being built all around us. And, and um, I don't want that to happen in Montana, into my place. Um, when I think about the 125 a month, I, I, uh, it, it makes me laugh sometimes that we ever paid that much. But, um, but it was too much for two college students. Um, I don't want that to happen to Montana. I love this place, and um, and I think we all together, Indian and non-Indian, love this place, and so we feel those threats from outside together. And I hope that we can somehow pull together to figure out what's best for everybody. And that's not a cop out. I really feel that. No realistic Montanan, I think, expects the next session of the legislature, or even the next, or even the one after that, to moisten collective fingers and test the new winds and say, by God, now, for the first time, we will set the terms. The terms. But there is hope, real hope, that it will come about. Why? I think you have to listen very carefully for the answer, because it's not a direct one. You have to listen to Montanans from east to west speaking, I think, very softly about the place they love. And if you listen carefully, I think you will hear it in their voices and see it in their faces. Indeed, the task is difficult. It will continue to be difficult. It's up to you people, not to me anymore. Uh, How do you go about it? How do you begin? I've been generalizing and generalizing. Well. I think you do this. You gather together a group of people about as follows. The governor, 
State Land Board, the Public Service Commission, the Director of State Planning and Economic Development, the Board of Natural Resources and Conservation, the Environmental Quality Council, the legislators, the mayors, the county commissioners, and you say this. Ladies and gentlemen, it is getting late, very late. All manner of people and things are moving from all directions, now once again, toward a land that we love. We want you to give top priority, each and all of you, to putting our house in order, which means that we want to grow, but we never, never again want to be raped or exploited. You people have the power, now use it, and we will give you just one guideline, and it is very simple. You will act and act now so that in the year 2000, no young man or young woman will leave this state because it cannot provide him or her with a job, and no person at all will leave this state because it is dirty and stinking and treeless and grassless and dry and used up. You are not to act for yourselves or for now. You are to act for others and the future. And if you will not do this, one by one then, and then dozens by dozens, we will remove you and we will put people in your places who know, as you do not, where the winds are tending. Contrary to much popular opinion, politicians very rarely lead. They follow. And there is almost always a lag between what a people want and what politicians think they want. So to get action, a people must express themselves constantly and very positively, very tenaciously, very aggressively, and very clearly. And that's up to you. Will Montanans do it? Will you do it? And will you do it in the face of great corporate opposition and in the face of the energy crisis and in the face of federal pressure? And will you do it and partisanship be damned? And will you do it before it's too late? Well, I suppose that only a practiced cynic would positively assert that you will not, but only a very naive person would positively assert that you will. The point is that these new winds, both good and evil, are blowing, and there is a stirring across this land, and there is a good chance, and I think it may be our last one, and I think that you had better try and try terribly hard. If I have forfeited the friendship of the people of the West, it is a matter of deep regret. My purpose was only to help us all understand our country and ourselves. I also want to sincerely thank everyone who has listened and contributed to the show. It could not have come together without the support of friends, family, and a cross-country Montana diaspora of listeners and contributors. Land Grab is written and produced by me, John Hooks, along with Matt Newman and Rory Murphy over at The Mint. Please make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. If you like the show, please do rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does get more eyes and ears on the show. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LandGrabPod. A reminder that we are a donor-supported show, 
So if you would like to hear more, if you would like to know more about these things, if you want more land grab, please, please do consider making a contribution on the website.